We are almost at the end of this eight-week sermon series on Jesus' parables. Today we're going to look at what I think is probably the most famous of all of the parables that Jesus told, and yet simultaneously it might be the most misunderstood, and I'm referring to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Yesterday I did a news search for the words Good Samaritan. This is what I found. A few days ago in New York, a dog fell off a bridge into the Harlem River. The newspaper said that a good Samaritan saw this, jumped into the water, and rescued the dog. This week in Oregon, a quote-unquote good Samaritan chased down a bike thief and returned the stolen bike to its rightful owner. A few days ago in Kansas, a quote-unquote good Samaritan came upon a car accident and pulled an injured woman from the burning car. That is what the term Good Samaritan means in popular culture. It, it simply means a person who steps in to help a stranger. It's someone who does an unsolicited act of kindness. And I want to start by saying that all of these acts of kindness are wonderful and the world would be a better place if we had more of them. But that's not the meaning of the story of the Good Samaritan. Because Jesus' parable is not about a random act of kindness. It's about tribalism and how we might be able to overcome it. It is a profound story about that moment when we discover that those people we think are our enemies are often more righteous than we are. But that's not all it's about. This story has many layers, and I want to get to them all. But first, let's establish the context. I'm going to do this as I read the story, because I think it will make more sense that way. Here's how the story begins. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. Let's stop there for a moment. An expert in the law stands up to test Jesus. This is someone who's like a priest or a scribe. He's part of the religious establishment. He's an expert in biblical law. And he asks Jesus this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But here's the thing, it's not a genuine question. The text says that he's trying to test Jesus. He's setting him up. He's trying to embarrass Jesus. He wants Jesus to say something incriminating. It's a gotcha question. Because this lawyer already knows the answer to his own question. According to his belief system, the way to salvation was to do the very thing that he's pretty good at doing as a religious scholar, following God's law. Do the right things and you'll be saved. It's a legalistic way of looking at life. After all, he's a lawyer. And it tends to be the way that people in the religious establishment, people like me, often view the world. Here are the rules. Follow them and you'll be okay. But this lawyer also knows that Jesus has a reputation for ignoring those rules. At least that's what people think. Because Jesus spends time with people who so often break those very rules, outcasts, sinners, the unclean. And so this lawyer expects Jesus to say, well, the law is not really that important. You don't need to follow the law. 
And that's why Jesus' answer comes as a surprise. He doesn't dismiss the law. He promotes it. Jesus says, well, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And as my children like to say, that's an uno reverse question. (laughs) He switches directions. Now the lawyer is the one who's on the spot. And the lawyer says, well, I'm supposed to love God with all my heart, and I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus says, yep, that's it. You've given the right right answer. So we have to imagine at this point the lawyer is kind of frustrated because Jesus has escaped his trap. And so he decides to push a little bit further. He knows that Jesus loves all of these people who don't deserve to be loved, the lepers, the tax collectors, the sex workers, the people possessed by demons, people that the lawyer probably tends to avoid in his life, people the law condemns. And so he asks Jesus a follow-up question. Okay, Jesus, the law says I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but who is my neighbor? And I want to stop right there again because the lawyer, although he may not know it, has asked what might be the most profound question in the entire Bible, who is my neighbor? Let me just ask you the same question, who was your neighbor? Who are you supposed to treat with love and kindness? Where are the boundaries? Can you love only those people who are biologically related to you? Or maybe just people that you're friendly with? Or maybe just people who are in your church? Or maybe just people who share your politics? Or are the boundaries larger? What about people you don't like? Are they your neighbors too? And in response to that accidentally profound question, Jesus, as is his habit, tells a story. Here's the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, And took off, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came upon him, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, treating them with oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. The setting of this story is important. It's a road that runs between Jerusalem and Jericho. This was an infamously dangerous place to travel. It was often called the way of blood because there were so many thieves who would attack and rob people traveling this road. And so the hearers of this parable are probably not surprised to hear that a man was robbed on this road. They're probably not even surprised to hear the gruesome details that these thieves beat the man. They took his possessions, they stripped him of his clothes, then they left him there bleeding half dead. That's literally what the Greek says, hemi dead. Think of a hemisphere 
He is half dead, meaning he's dying. His life depends literally on getting help from someone. Who is going to save this man? Who is going to be the neighbor to this man? Now, by chance, uh, a priest walks by. A priest, of course, is a holy figure. It's sort of his role to be compassionate. But when he sees a fellow Jewish person lying there bleeding on the road, he goes out of his way, crosses to the other side of the road just to avoid having to walk near him. Then a Levite comes. Levites were also considered holy people. But just like this priest, he sees the man lying on the road and he intentionally crosses to the other side of the road to avoid him. The story so far has maybe just a little shock value. I mean, it's a little shocking maybe to hear someone criticize holy figures. But I think at this point in Luke's gospel, people have heard Jesus making these kinds of statements before. They knew that Jesus didn't care much for the religious establishment. He preferred to spend time with ordinary people. His disciples were uneducated fishermen. He is not impressed with the pomp of religion. He seems to be more interested in what happens on the inside of people within their hearts. But even those people who knew this about Jesus were not prepared for what he said next. It's one thing to say, look at these supposedly holy men. They don't actually practice what what they preach. That's one thing. It was another thing to lift up a Samaritan as the story's hero. And you see, this is what people don't understand when they use the term Good Samaritan. What they don't understand is that Jews and Samaritans were bitter enemies. They shared a common heritage, and they lived very close to one another, but they hated each other. You can think of Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland. You can think of Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda. You can think of Hindus and Muslims in India. You can think of Russians and Ukrainians. You can think of Republicans and Democrats. I want to read a few contemporaneous sources that describe Jewish uh, attitudes towards Samaritans. One ancient Jewish writer wrote this, There are two nations my soul detests, and a third nation is not even a people. And by that he meant, quote, the foolish people that live in Shechem, which was the capital, capital of Samaria. Another ancient Levitical source says this, Shechem is the city of the senseless, Because as one might scoff at a fool, so we scoffed at them. The Jewish historian Josephus tells many stories of fighting between Jews and Samaritans. This included everything from outright murder to forced slavery. Samaritans were viewed as permanently unclean, which is why when John tells the story of Jesus asking a Samaritan woman for a drink of water, John says that Jews and Samaritans didn't share things. They literally would not drink from the same water cup. In another story in John, Jesus is refused entry into a Samaritan village, and his disciples literally ask him, Jesus, is it okay if we pray to God that he would rain fire down on this village and destroy them all? That gives you some sense of the enmity between these two groups of people. And yet, what happens in this parable? The hero turns out to be a Samaritan. Unlike these holy men, the Samaritan has compassion. He sees the man bleeding in the road. He stops. He gets off his donkey. He pours oil and wine on the man's wounds. These were, of course, very expensive products. 
He bandages the man's wounds. He puts him on his own animal, which means he then has to walk. He takes him to an inn. He gives the innkeeper money, and he says, keep my tab open. Whatever charges he incurs, I will pay them. The only thing he is concerned with is the well-being of his enemy. You see, this is not a random act of kindness. To be a good Samaritan is to cross a boundary that not many people are willing to cross. It's to see the humanity in your enemies. Now let's go back to the lawyer's question. Who is my neighbor? I suspect that this lawyer expected Jesus to push the boundaries a little bit. He knew that about Jesus. He expected Jesus to say, Something like your neighbors are people within your tribe. But of course, the lawyer's circle is even smaller than this. He didn't like everybody in his tribe. I mean, he didn't like Jesus. And he didn't like the people that Jesus liked, the, the sinners and the outcasts. Maybe he thought Jesus would say, you know, you need to expand your circle to the kinds of Jews whom I love. Those people you call sinners, they're Jews too. We ought to include them in our circle. That argument would have at least made sense to this lawyer. What he did not expect Jesus to say is that a Samaritan is your neighbor. Because what that means is that there are no boundaries. None. If a Samaritan is my neighbor, it means everyone is my neighbor. Even Republicans and even Democrats, to which Jesus would say, yes, you finally understand me. This is not an easy story because this is a story about overcoming tribalism. Martin Luther King Jr. preached a famous sermon on this parable in which he tried to explain the difference between the priests and the Samaritan Martin Luther King said that the difference is that these characters ask different questions. The priest and the Levite see the man in the road, and they ask this question. If I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? How will my life be affected? Are there negative repercussions for me and my reputation and my financial position and my comfort if I stop to help this person in need? King said that the Samaritan asks a different question. He sees the man lying in the road bleeding, and he asks this question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's a big difference. The, the Samaritan says, I don't have time to think about the fact that this man probably hates me because he is Jewish and I am Samaritan. I don't have time to think about my own hatred for him and his people because there is a truth that is bigger than my prejudices, there's a human being who needs help. If I don't stop, who will help him? What will happen to him? Now, let me make this very clear. We are obviously talking about very specific ethnicities here in the ancient world. Jesus was a Jew critiquing certain Jews but the ideas Jesus is talking about are universal, and they would apply about tribalism in India and Africa and Europe. And in fact, we don't really need to look far because tribalism is the very thing that is tearing apart our own nation as we speak. Americans are bitterly divided by exactly the same kind of tribalism that Jesus is critiquing in this story. And therefore, we have to go deeper and we have to ask, why are people tribal in the first place? 
And I'm going to dive into some philosophy here, so just take a deep breath. It's important. All right. I want to talk a little bit about an idea from a French philosopher named René Girard. I've spoken about Girard in other sermons. I think he's one of the most important philosophers in the 20th century, especially for Christians, because he saw something in Christianity that, that had always been there, but that many of us had not seen before. Here's what Girard saw. That tribalism, first of all, is present in all human civilizations, always has been. Tribalism is, is when we form an identity not based on what we're for, but based on whom we are against. This is a brilliant insight. He saw that our hatred for other people is actually often the glue that holds us together as a people. So, I mean, just look at America right now. I mean, often these political parties, they don't get together because they have these optimistic ideas or an optimistic vision about how they can work together to get things done. They get together because they hate these other people so much. And their hatred of this other group, it turns out it's kind of like a glue. And they feel kind of close to one another because at least they have that in common. They hate the same people. But there was not, there, it's not always been this, that way because there was a time in the United States when American society was very cohesive. Gerard says that it was after World War II. Why were we more together as a nation after World War II? He says it's because we had a common enemy. In the 1940s, conservative and liberal Americans hated the Germans more than they hated one another. In the 1940s, conservative and liberal Americans hated the Japanese more than they hated one another. And on the basis of that common enemy, their judgmentalism brought them together. Gerard says this is called the scapegoat phenomenon. He says it is the most fundamental way that all societies operate. And I think we experience this on a small personal level too. Have you ever spent time gossiping about somebody? Have you ever noticed that if you gossip about another person, sometimes it makes you feel closer to the person that you're sharing that information with? Well, here's another in interesting thing. This is what Gerard talks about. While the Americans were bonding on the basis of their enmity toward the Germans and the Japanese, something similar was happening in Germany. He says that before Hitler came to power, German society was intensely divided. There was a lot of partisanship. Hitler unified the Germans by finding an enemy in the Jews. Hitler told Aryan Germans that the real problem was not their conflicts with other Aryans, it was the Jews, which actually, in a really grotesque way, brought Aryans together. It's an awful thing to realize, but this is how scapegoating works. Now, Gerard says that this is also the way that religions always work. Every single religion says we are God's chosen people. We are better than people who are not part of our group. They are infidels, which means we can judge and even kill them. They become the scapegoats that bring us closer together. But something new happened, Gerard said, with Christ. Because suddenly along comes this Messiah who says something that nobody else has ever said. You've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your any, enemy, but I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That was new. 
It was new within Judaism. It would have been new in every single other culture that Jesus might have lived in because the way all traditional religions work was to scapegoat enemies. In another place, Jesus says, if you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do that. He said, it's not enough just to love those who agree with you. It's not enough to say the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I mean, that might make you feel closer to some people, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is when you realize that the only thing that can bring enemies together is repentance. It's when you say, I have no right to pass judgment on anyone because I am the problem. It's not my enemies, it's I who must change. That's the gospel. How does that happen? How does it actually happen? I mean, this is what Gerard was talking about, not like how does it happen in, within my heart, but how does this actually happen, like in the universe? And this is what Gerard says. It happens because God takes our hatred onto himself. God, in other words, becomes our scapegoat. This is what Gerard saw, that the cross is the end of religion because it's the end of scapegoating. Jesus looked at a world of injustice in which abuse was rampant, again, irrespective of culture. I mean, the Romans scapegoated everybody. The Romans were awful in this regard. I mean, their own self-identity was completely based in their mockery of the people that they called barbarians. Jesus looked out at a world of tribalism and he said, if you want the point, to point the finger at someone, point it at me. Hate me, I will be your enemy, kill me, which they did. He was beaten and mocked and stripped naked, and he was hung up as a joke. Look at this stupid Jew who thought he was a kind of a king. That's what the Romans thought. I mean, they didn't lose a second of sleep on Jesus, but when God raised him, he did nothing less than to subvert the entire logic by which most cultures are based, which is the logic of tribalism. Right? This is still the way so many of us identify ourselves, not by whom we love, but by whom we hate. And when we do this, we lose sight of the gospel. Because the gospel says when you point a finger at someone else, you have three fingers pointed back at you. You are the problem. Before you point out the speck in your neighbor's eye, take the log out of your own eye. Last week, we looked at the parable of the two sons. We spoke about the fact that the elder son hates his little brother. Now, what I didn't say about this is that this is actually how he identifies himself. If you had asked the elder brother, who are you? I think he might have said, I'm a whole lot better than my little brother. That's who I am. I'm not an awful punk like this kid. That's who I am. I am whom I hate. I stayed in work. I did everything right. I deserve more than him because he's a loser. And yet, as we saw last week, where does this leave the elder brother? Does it help him? He's miserable. He has no love for the father either because he refuses to repent. He refuses to admit that just like his little brother, he sees his father as the enemy. And this becomes so clear at the end of the story when he refuses to celebrate his brother's homecoming. They have a feast. He can hear the music. He can hear the dancing. And he refuses to go into the tent because he refuses to repent. 
And now I think this should feel pretty familiar to us. Because what Gerard says is that this is human nature. This is how societies function. This is how religions function. It's how politics function. It's how war works. It's how our personal relationships often work. It's regrettably how sometimes our churches work, which is why the cross has always been and will always be counterintuitive. It'll always challenge us. Now, these parables have shifting metaphors, but I want to leave you with one final interpretation on this last Sunday in which I will preach on this on this series. I think one powerful way to read this parable is to view the Samaritan as God. Because the Samaritan, to the original hearers of this story, is the enemy. And what the cross says is that we have made God an enemy. In our sin, we have rebelled against him, and yet, who comes to our rescue? The very one whom we rejected our enemy. When we are bleeding in the ditch, our enemy stops. At great personal expense, our enemy tends to our wounds. He puts us on his own animal. He pays for our bills. He pays our debts. Have we ever heard that before? What's the proper response to this kind of grace? It's to get on our knees and thank God. And then if your heart has been changed, I think it's to try to stop identifying yourself through the people whom you hate. Stop saying, I know who I am because at least I'm not like those people. Start saying, the problem is I, and thank God for the cross. Amen.